Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here. If you're new with us, welcome. Really glad that you're here also. And I know a lot of people are watching online virtually and maybe on televisions or uh, telephone sitting in parking lots. I get notes from people who are watching that way. So however you decided to be with us today, really glad that you're part of us, whether in person or virtually. I have people occasionally ask me if I'm uh, discouraged by the numbers in the sense that, you know, if you came in January or February, you'd find a thousand people at New Hope, and now post-COVID, um, not so much, right? And so what we found is across the country, what's going on at New Hope is no exception. Uh, people are slowly dabbling and putting their toe in the water and trying to figure out if it's going to work for them or, or they're letting us know that maybe when masks are gone, they're going to come back or maybe when there's greater distancing, they're going to come back it, and everybody has their various opinions on it. Here's what I know from my opinion. Um, after doing 14 weeks in the lockdown when I was just talking to a black camera and there was nobody in the auditorium, this is great to have you all here, right? All right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that we can do church together. I'm glad you can do it virtually. And um, just if you're curious, you know, seven, 800 people, households a week watch online. And, and then if you're watching online and you don't know that typically on the weekend, there's around 300 people that come to the two services. So we get to uh, be together in service together that way, still the church connected and I'm looking forward to digging into God's word with you this morning. I'm going to put something up on the screen for you, and it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.18. I just want you to drink in this statement. I know some of you are going to know immediately what he's referring to here when he says, comfort one another with these words. Now, Paul's writing about a very specific instance, and we're going to be in a parable this morning that's going to speak to that issue. Guys, if you could put that back on the screen and just leave that up for me. We're going to, we're going to chew on that for a minute. I know there's a day coming when you're not going to have to wear masks anymore. I know there's a day coming when you're going to be able to go up and hug your best friend. And you're going to be able to do non-social distancing. You'll be able to sit next to each other. And we find comfort in those words, right? Because we can remember it wasn't that long ago when you didn't have to do that. So we find comfort in that thought that this isn't forever. This is temporary. We find comfort when someone gets a good health report when we thought they were going to get a bad health report. We find comfort in issues that affect our everyday life. But what Paul's writing about here is comfort of a bigger issue, of a, a much larger issue. And it's directly related to this component of the parable in Luke chapter 12. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Whether you're home watching or you're live in the auditorium, if you have a Bible with you, perhaps you have it electronically on your phone, go to two passages with me this morning. And maybe you put your finger in, in the one that I'm going to bring up. Luke chapter 12, you're going to want to be in that for sure. We're going to dig through that. Maybe you downloaded the notes this morning before you came in, or, or you can do that right now at home. In Luke chapter 12, you're definitely going to want to be there. But also, Daniel chapter 7. I, I pre-opened my Bible before you came in the auditorium this morning to Daniel chapter 7. You'll see why, how those two components, Old Testament and New Testament, come together. But before we do that, I, I would like to pray with you, because clearly God's doing a new thing in our world. He's even using this COVID virus to bring people into the kingdom. 
I can point you to individuals who made decisions for Jesus Christ in the last number of weeks directly as a result of the fact that they began watching church because they were concerned about COVID virus. So they decided to dial into New Hope and for God's knowledge and God's reasoning alone, he used that to motivate individuals to receive Jesus as their savior. Good thing, right? All right, so we know that God's doing a new thing all the time. Jesus said, my father is always working. And God's doing a new thing among us right now. It's a different way of doing church than what we're accustomed to. But God can work through this also. So I want to go to that one in prayer with you and recognize not only that he has control of all things, but he knows exactly what's coming next. And we should take comfort from that as well. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every person who's gathered, whether virtually or in person this morning. For those who are dedicated to being able to know more about you, I ask that your blessing would rest on them. Some are not able to come, Father, because of illness. I, I pray that you'd be close to them, and that you would strengthen their bodies, especially those struggling physically right now that are in pain. God, that you would be the one who would bring healing to them. For those who are lonely, Father, that you would bring comfort and for those who are really looking to know more about you, God, especially those who have not yet found a relationship with you through Jesus, I pray that this morning that you would draw them deeper into relationship. In each case, God, I, I do ask specifically that as the father of all comfort, you would comfort us as we dig into why you caused Paul to write that down and, and why Jesus spoke the way he did in the parable we're going to look at. So right now, Father, I ask that you would illuminate our minds, that you would open our eyes, allow us to see the truth of what you recorded so that we would be strengthened. I pray for this in the name of our soon coming king and all God's people said, amen. So we've got this passage in Luke chapter 12, and, and we've been, if you're new to the church, we're working through a parable series since last October, and this is the third section in it. What we've been finding through the parables is that God uses the parables historically to describe what his kingdom is like, and he describes what it's like when you would expect eternity, what that should be like, and, and what his standards of expectations are for those who belong to him. So in a nutshell, he uses it to describe eternity, he describes his kingdom, he describes expectations, and what we've learned about parables is it's taking something from the physical world and laying it alongside the spiritual world for the purpose of giving an illustration where you're going to find Jesus doing exactly that today. Dr. Luke sets up this parable by letting us know in verse 1 of chapter 12 that there's a really, really large crowd gathered. And Jesus begins teaching from 12.1 all the way into chapter 13, verse 9, and along the way he starts dropping parables. So here's the setup verse. It comes from verse 1. Look with me on the screen or if you don't have your Bible with you. After so many thousands, meaning the word myriads is used there in the Greek language, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we, we learned last week when we were looking at this same section that the, the crowds are enormous. The word myriads is used, which means tens of thousands of people. And now in spite of the miracles that Jesus is doing and the powerful teaching that he's doing and, and in spite of the power of his personality, the scribes and the Pharisees are still accusing him 
of having nefarious purposes. And they say that the work he's doing, he's doing of Satan. And Jesus is using this opportunity to correct the thinking of the people. So in spite of the Pharisees and the scribes trying to put their own spin on the story, the crowds are really curious about this one Jesus because he delivers an unvarnished truth and he makes no bones at all whatsoever about being compelling about who the scribes and the Pharisees and false religion really is. And so the crowds in mass are following Jesus. We left off last week with Jesus telling us what to do with your earthly possessions. We especially saw that in verse 34. And he said, in regards to your earthly fortune, wherever your heart is at, your money's going to follow. Wherever your money's at, your heart's going to follow. The two work in synchronization together. So when we pick up in Luke chapter 12, he's in that exact same setting where we come into these parables this morning. And he's still speaking to the same crowd that he just said, you've got to abandon the influence of the Pharisees. You've got to abandon the false teaching and shake that off. Come out of that system of legalism that you're in. And that's still true today. That's still true in our generation. At the same time you're learning truth, you have to unlearn the false truth that you were part of. And you can only do that by hearing the word of God. God's word is truth. So Jesus goes on to say, you've got to stop fearing men. You've got to stop, start fearing God. He alone has the authority to put you in hell. Confess Jesus as your Lord and avoid the love of money and avoid the anxiety. Become rich towards God. All those things are part of chapter 12. Now, it appears he's talking to the crowd, all the thousands that are gathered. He's speaking to the large group. But then we see there's a bit of a pivot that takes place, and he, he looks like he's speaking specifically to the disciples, those who would be committed followers, not just the 12. Obviously, there's a bigger number that are following Jesus than just the 12 disciples. And he begins honing in on them, and he starts saying to them, you shed the anxiety. You shed the worry. you got to shed the fear that comes from being consumed with the things of this world. And this is where we left off last week, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Right on the heels of that, he begins redirecting our focus to where it should be. He says, where all this is headed, and this meaning all these things of this planet, all the things that you are consumed by, the possessions that you own, your wealth, it's going to lead to something, and then he drops a parable. And here's just a snippet of it, the first part, verse 35. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So Jesus says, be like those guys. Be like those in the parable who are waiting for their master to return. It is fascinating to me. He does it right on the heels of talking about this money issue. But he keeps going. Verse 37, look at this. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now, what's the context? I find it fascinating because he's just talked to people and he's hammered the issue about not being distracted with the things of this earth. Stop being consumed with what Costco has on sale. Stop being consumed with what your 401k says now compared to what it said in January. Stop being consumed with what your job is producing for you. Be focused on the bigger ish issue. And Jesus is using all of that imagery right on the heels of 
then dropping this snippet of a parable. Why? Because that wealth, all those possessions that you have, those are the very things that are drawing your attention away from the bigger issue that's on the horizon, the thing we're going to talk about this morning. We can be so focused on the immediate with what's right in front of us like a virus that we can miss the bigger thing that God's really doing. So Jesus says in Luke 12, look at this, just bear down in this sentence, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. In the ancient world, you know, if you've looked back and studied the first century at all, you know that people wore robes, big piece of fabric, usually a one-piece fabric that was woven by someone at a local weaving loom that had a hole in the top where you could put your head through and holes in the sides where you could put your arm through and the bottom was completely open and, and that was just the inner garment and the outer garment was much the same. But they were very long and they would get around your ankles and you couldn't stay ready for action. So if somebody wanted to run, if they immediately needed to go into action, they'd first have to gather up all of that material and tuck it into a belt. It's called girding your loins for action, actually, in the Bible is the way it describes it. So taking all that fabric, pulling it up around your waist, pulling a belt around it, and then your legs were free. So if your buddy wants to throw you a Frisbee, you can actually run after it. Or if someone says, go long, and you can chase a football. I don't know if they had footballs then. I doubt that they did. But, you know, you, you know where I'm going at with that. The, the action issue. Jesus says, be ready for action. Now, keep that thought in mind when he describes that. And he says, if you want to be considered blessed by God, be like that. Be dialed into what's really going on around you on the horizon. To the degree that you're ready to respond, look at the signs of the times and keep your eye on the horizon. And then he keeps going with this in verse 37. Truly I say to you, he, and he's talking about the master of the house now, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, meaning the servants, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. He's all giving end times imagery here. And then he drops this bombshell in verse 40. Look with me in verse 40. You, and he's speaking to the disciples now, you followers of Jesus, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And he's woven it together right in the midst of a parable. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We'll see if we get an amen out of this. Jesus is coming again. Amen. All right, you dialed in. You know where we're going with this. That's what he's setting up here. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And he's going to deal with the righteous, and the righteous will be with him. And he's going to punish the wicked. And that's how the world ends as we know it. The Bible is just as clear on the second coming as it is on the first coming. But, but if you lived in the first century, and you're sitting in that crowd of thousands of people, and you hear Jesus, this revered rabbi, say that the Son of Man is coming. Where does your mind go? 
What are you thinking of on that afternoon when this one says that? Just bear down on that sentence. You'll see it up on the screen. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If you grew up in church, you have a framework of understanding of what you believe that to be saying. You know he's speaking of the culmination of all the things of human history that will end on this planet. When all of God's purposes as predicted in Scripture will be fulfilled with absolute precision. And maybe you're a student of the Bible. And as a Bible student, you know the story of our world has an ending. It's already been designed by God. He's already planned it out. Just put together a summary in your mind of where Jesus is going here in Luke chapter 12. Put it all together. He's told this crowd to avoid the false teachings. Beware of the leaven of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's told them not to be anxious about tomorrow, not to be worrying about their money, but to keep their eyes on the horizon. Avoid the fear of man, because those very things prevent people from this planet from coming to a true salvation in Jesus. And then he leads into that thought, because I'm coming back again. Because the Son of Man is returning, and you don't know when. Meaning you and I can't be indifferent about the future. you got to be ready for the future. And the future he's talking about is his return in power and in glory. So in verse 40, he says, the Son of Man is coming. And Jesus states it as absolute fact. And he's making it really clear. You want to be part of my kingdom? You want to eternally live with me? Be more concerned about the fear of God than the fear of man. Confess Jesus as your Lord. Be rich towards God. Seek his kingdom. And he says you need a motivation for that. And the motivation is I'm coming back again and you don't know when. Meaning, everything in our world is not going to go as it has always gone. This virus that's invaded our world that's been with us for, what, five months now? We think that's turned our world upside down? Where Jesus is going with this? This is a total remaking of everything that has ever been known on this planet. But we'll get there in just a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I get ahead of myself, let me just bear with you on this title, Son of Man, that Jesus has just used. Just three words. You see it on the screen, Son of Man. Now, you find it used in the Old Testament. It's used in the Old Testament in cases referring to humans. Look with me on the screen at this one from Psalm 8.4. David wrote this. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Here, David's using it to speak of the insignificance of humanity in, in relation to the awesomeness of God. Ezekiel called himself the son of man, the son of man, the son of man, constantly. And he did that in order to refer to the insignificance of man in relation to the awesomeness of who God is. So the ancients were aware that the title son of man or this term, it actually indicates someone who's human in every sense. That's one of the reasons Jesus used it. But there's a bigger issue going on here. There's another element, something that goes far beyond that is dominating the thoughts of the thousands who are sitting in Jesus' presence that day. Because they live in the first century and they go to synagogue regularly and they've heard the scribes speak about the Son of Man because the ancient prophets understood this title as a title especially belonging to the Messiah who would be coming. 
So the most distressing thing that day about hearing this title, the concept of the Son of Man, for those listening, the very thing that would cause them to have their heart skip a beat and maybe draw an extra breath, for any person who knows God's word, they would know that that title comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel referred to specifically the one who was coming as the Son of Man. They knew that as a title for the Messiah. So I'm just briefly going to take you to Daniel chapter 7. You'll see it pop up on the screen in case you didn't turn there in your own Bible. Look with me at this. This is Daniel's description. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And immediately you begin to see the link and the association with what Jesus has just stated here. Daniel has made a statement about this title, Son of Man. Jesus has given a reverberation or an echo of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. What's going on in Daniel chapter 7? I hope you read it later today, especially if you've never read the book of Daniel. But here's what happens in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is caught up, and he sees an imagery of the throne room of God. And he records all that he says, and it sees, and he records even the throne, what the throne looks like. But then he says, I saw the ancient of days, and then I looked, and on the clouds of heaven came one who was the Son of Man. And that one was presented in royal splendor before the ancient of days. And to that one, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and power and a kingdom. And the tribes of every nation of every tongue would bow down before him. That's what Daniel 7 contains. It's a powerful, powerful image that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. And it's enormous messianic prophecy in Daniel 7. And those who were living in the ancient world and those who read the word of God and they studied the word of God, they knew that prophecy. And they knew the Son of Man was the, the title for the Messiah. And they could connect the dots with what Jesus was saying. Jesus has repeatedly throughout his life referred to himself as the Son of Man, completely human, but fully God. Let me give you two examples of that usage by looking on the screen. Mark 2.10. This one you'll be very familiar with, Jesus healing a paralytic. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, there's the title, Jesus is speaking, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. Or this one, Mark 14, 61. Jesus is on trial for his life. He's been turned in by Judas, and he stands before the high priest. And the high priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Each time Jesus uses the title Son of Man, he's referring to his complete humanness, but also his ruling as God the Son. Each time it's a reference and a connection to Daniel chapter 7. The title Son of Man belongs to the Son of God, the one who has the power to heal and say to the paralytic, get up, the one who has the power to say, your sins are forgiven you. You don't have to worry about that. The same one is the one who's going to come in the power of the clouds of heaven. So in Luke chapter 12, 
Jesus says, you better be ready. You better be ready because I'm coming again. The Son of Man is coming, and he's coming when you don't expect it. See, as you see these reminders from Jesus, you should see them as incredible, astounding motivation for both the believer in Jesus and for the non-believer. Because Jesus never drops that nugget of using that title without motivating people to take some form of action. Check it yourself. When you see him referring to the Son of Man, you'll always see an action. He's compelling people to action along with it. Here's an example for you. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man, he's using it again, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Action associated with his coming. But just before that... Just before Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says, you want to be part of my kingdom? you got to take up your cross and follow me and do it now because the Son of Man is going to come. Or combine that motivation with something from Luke chapter 9 where Jesus speaks of the same issue. Look with me on the screen at Luke chapter 9. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Over and over and over and over and over. The motivation is associated with using the title Son of Man. He's coming, and there's going to be an accounting. There's going to be an outcome. So the Lord Jesus himself uses the coming, the second coming, as motivation to propel people to respond to the gospel, both believers and non-believers. Believers, get ready. Non-believers, you better get your heart right. That makes sense, then, why in Acts chapter 1, that after the crucifixion, and after the resurrection, just before Jesus ascends to the Father, when the hundreds have seen him walking around live, even though he was dead, that the disciples gather together in Acts chapter 1, and they say to him, when will these things be? When is this going to happen? When are you going to come again? Well, Jesus responds to them in Acts chapter 1 and says, it's not for you to know. You don't know the day, the hour. It's not for you to know the times and the epochs. My Father has already fixed a day. I don't know about you, but I'm asked on a fairly routine basis. Mark, do you, do you feel like Jesus is coming back soon? Especially I've had that asked to me since COVID appeared on the scene. I got notes from people who said, could this be the fourth horse of the apocalypse? Is that what's going on here? It, it, I want to respond very quickly to individuals by saying it's not about my feelings. It's not about what I feel. Theology is not based on feelings. Theology can't be based on my feelings or it would be movable. Here's what I do know about God's timing and his return. I don't know, right? 
And you don't either. None of us know. Scripture actually says this, Matthew 24, 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Ever since Jesus' first coming, ever since that period of time in the first century, believers have been living with the realization that he could come at any minute. And there's specific things he did say to look for. Things that are written in the books of Ezekiel and written in the books of Isaiah and in Daniel and laid out for us in the book of Revelation. Jesus called them the birth pangs of this planet, things you should be watching for. But we do know there's one event that leads to the second coming, one event that has to happen, and it will be one monumental event. The Bible refers to it as the removal of the church. I'm a person who believes in the rapture of the church that Jesus is going to take the church out. Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Let me show you what it says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. What Paul's referring to is there's no sign that precedes that. It's instant. How fast can you blink your eye? In that moment, it could have been 60 seconds ago. It, it could have been 100 years ago. It could be tomorrow. God could kick the can down the road, and it could be 500 years from now. But when it happens, it's going to happen instantly. There's no sign that precedes it. There's just going to be a shout, we're told. The shout of an archangel, the trumpet of God will blast, and the true church will be gone in the twinkling of an eye. We're going to be changed and taken into heaven. That's the teaching of the Bible. Now, the writers of the New Testament, they lived with this reality. They lived with it daily, that it could happen at any moment. Let me just read to you a few verses that refer you to this, and they're in your notes this morning as well, and maybe if you get a chance to load them down later, you'll find the references. You're not going to see them on the screen. Just drink this in and hear this. This is from Paul writing to Titus. We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We're looking for it. Our eyes are on the horizon, or what about this? James speaks of it as being imminent. Be patient, therefore, brethren, to the coming of the Lord, James 5, 7. Or when Peter wrote, the end of all things is at hand. Or John wrote in 1 John, children, it is the last hour. Or Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as was given to his bondservant, the things which must shortly take place. And maybe you're a person who are thinking, well, I, shortly, it sounds like it should have been like within just days of Jesus leaving. We'll come back to that in just a moment. It's a reality that 2,000 years have gone by and Jesus hasn't returned yet. And the reality is you'll find people who will say, he's not coming back. Come on, 2,000 years have gone by. Well, the reality is the Bible says there will always be scoffers who will mock at that thought. Look with me on the screen, 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? It's been 2,000 years. Things are going on exactly the same way that they've always gone on. That's where Peter goes next in verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 4. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter's saying that's what mockers would say, that everything's exactly the same. To which he would say and I would say, really? Are you sure about that? 
Watch the logic that Peter uses here in verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Peter's argument is this. Have they so quickly forgotten that God called forth this planet out of chaos and out of trauma, according to Genesis 1-1, out of the void God called forth creation, and then in Genesis chapter 6, God uncreated and had to recreate again out of chaos as a result of the flood. God had to reshape things. Have they forgotten that? The world that we have today, the world is the way it is because of catastrophic creation and recreation in the flood, which leads to another catastrophe, Peter argues in verse 7. The present heavens as we know them and the present earth as we know it has been reserved for fire, 2 Peter 3, 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. I challenge you, go read 2 Peter later today. Peter writes that all the elements, everything in this universe is going to melt with a fervent heat, that God is going to uncreate as he brings judgment on the earth. And he's going to wipe everything completely out of existence. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says. So all that to say, all things do not continue on as they have always been. Things are going to be different. God creates and recreates out of catastrophe. So logically, you would understand why the disciples would say, and we would say today, how long then? How long is he going to wait? Well, Verse 8 will not come up on the screen, but Peter uses this logic, this reasoning. Do not, just drink this in, listen to this. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Meaning, it might be a long time on your calendar, but with God, it's as though just a day has gone by. Or even that, it's just used as an analogy. He's the God of eternity. It might be long on your calendar, but it's short on God's calendar. He's the eternal God. He's the God who's beyond time. So if if you're asking, why is he waiting? Well, verse 9 closes it out by saying, God is being patient so that no one would perish. He doesn't want to see anyone perish. So he's not slow as comes some count slowness in verse 9. All that to say, you follow the logic of Luke chapter 9 or 12 now, why Jesus said what he said? Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, I'm leaving. I'm ascending to the Father, but I'm coming back again. I'm returning. And so the parable is simply three really short analogies of readiness. These are going to pop up on the screen for you. I know I'm treating this differently than we have the other parables because Jesus delivers it differently. Typically, we've gone into a story. We've really developed the parables, but that's not the way Jesus delivered this one. So look at these three analogies of readiness he gave us in verses 35 through 39. They'll come up really quick. Just see them on the screen. Number one, be dressed in readiness. 
because everyone was wearing these long robes and it would trip around their ankles. So he took a physical reality, laid it alongside a spiritual reality, and it's simply analogy saying, you, you've got to be ready to move and move fast. It's a metaphor for spiritual readiness. Or number two, keep your lamps lit. That was just referring to not being in this time of wandering around in darkness. Be alert, be watchful, have everything ready to go. Or this third one, be like those guys. Be like those ones who are waiting for their master. What's the context of that? He went on to talk about a wedding. And he's describing a wedding scene when the master of the household would leave the household staff behind as he traveled to a wedding that was located some distance away. And he told his household staff, I don't know when I'll be back, but I'm coming back, and so be ready for me. Now, they could and they should take that comment seriously. And that's why Jesus went on to say, blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. In verse 36, he was saying, be like that. Be like those servants who are watching on the horizon, who are looking at the signs of the times, who are watching what's happening in their world. Keep watching out the window so that when the master puts his hand out to turn the doorknob, you're right there behind the door and you're ready. You're not off being absorbed with the things of the world. He said, as a result of that, that master is going to be so thrilled that he's going to tell that household staff to sit down at the table. I'm going to cook for you. I'll, I'll put on the robes of a worker. So he's giving the image of the marriage supper of the lamb when the bridegroom serves his bride, when he takes everyone who's a believer to heaven and he gives the feast of the lamb to the church. This is all part of that imagery. So logically, we're left with the question, okay, how do we get ready? What do we do to get ready? Well, first of all, the biggest issue, make a decision for Jesus Christ. Give your life to Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 13, the day is long spent. The night is at hand. There isn't more time. Wake up, he says, the night is far spent. Why? Well, because what Jesus said in Luke 12, 40, the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus told you these things because he cares. Not to build anxiety in you, but to remove anxiety. He wants us to know in advance. He has written the end of the story. The bigger picture is God has it all in hand. There's a plan. He says, I'm going away, but I'm coming back, and I'm going to take you to the place I'm preparing for you. So in order to land this plane, let me just close it out with what I referred to just a moment ago with 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul said, behold, I tell you a mystery. Look at this mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, behold, I tell you a mystery in the Bible. The word mystery means something that hasn't been revealed yet. It was hidden in the past, but it's now being revealed. Here's the mystery that Paul goes on to talk about. He says, we're not all going to die. Imagine what a bomb that was to people in the first century hearing that. What, what do you mean you're not all going to die? We're not going to all die? How does that work, Paul? Are well, you going to be changed? You're going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, that's something new. Verse 52 said, 
in a blink, in an eye blink. The trumpet will sound, the angel will descend, and the church will be caught up. In that moment, God marries together a new spiritual being with a new physical body. You have a new spiritual being within you, a redeemed soul. God's going to bring it together with a new physical body for your benefit. In that nanosecond, the first thing that happens at the twinkling of an eye, when the angel shouts and the trumpet sounds, is that a new body joins the, the, the redeemed spirit. He says, we who remain are instantly transformed. So in 1 Thessalonians, that exact same event is being described. And we started today with 1 Thessalonians. Let's end with it. Look at the full context of the passage. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. And there it is, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When's the last time that you thought of what's going on in your world right now as comforting as opposed to anxiety-inducing? You watch the stock markets climb and fall, anxiety. You run into your best friend and they're wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask and you don't know what to do and you gotta keep your distance but you wanna hug, anxiety. You hear your boss say there's gonna be budget cuts and we're not sure if we're gonna have to let you go but we'll get back to you. Anxiety. Jesus says, comfort yourself with these words. Comfort one another with these words. I'm coming back. And I've got everything under control. I've got a plan. It's already been written out. Do you believe? End with this thought. When you read 1 Corinthians and when you read 1 Thessalonians and you look at these references to the, the last days and the end times all speaking of Jesus coming for his own? Is that you? Do you belong to him this morning? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And he's coming for you. And he's not coming for you with reference to judgment. That's a really important point to pull out of 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. In each case, it's comforting and it's encouraging because he's not coming in judgment for you if you're a believer. Your judgment, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your judgment for your sins, that was already handled at the cross 2,000 years ago. It was already dealt with. You don't have to live in anxiety and in fear. You just have to look for the return of the king because you've already been made righteous. I want to pray with you about what we've just explored so that we ask God to seal it in our heart. And I'll pray good and loud because I know it's hard to hear over the rainstorm, all right? Let's just pray together. Father, we shout not because you can't hear us. We know that you can. But for the purpose of declaration of this truth, we praise you and thank you that we live in the reality that you're coming again. 
viruses aside, job losses aside, things not going the way that we want them to, all that aside, we recognize that you are at work and you're doing a new thing. And Jesus declared that you're always at work and that he's at work. So God, what I take from that reality is, is that we're supposed to join you in your work and not demand that you do things our way, but rather that we look for ways to join you, that we, we approach these issues with grace and that we speak the truth in love. So we come before you humbly, recognizing that we're living in a world that's confused, but we need to be reminded, especially, Father, as believers, that you're coming again. Help us to remember that when the stock market rises and falls and when we're told to wear masks in grocery stores. God, you've got this under control. We praise you for that. I thank you for the one who made it all possible, the one who's coming back for us the Lord Jesus Christ, who's coming again. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.